Welcome to your Xenon Group training tape. I am your co-host, Sean. I'm uh, your other co-host, Aaron. Uh, as you know, this is training tape number 142. If you are not an employee of Xenon Group, please throw this tape out now. If you're interested to find out who produces this tape, well, Aaron and I, we have a little consulting firm. I mean, we're known around town as the wrong boys, but we call ourselves Goldilocks Consulting. There's the famous parable, Goldilocks Goldilocks, a hot porridge, cold porridge, just right porridge. And we like to say Goldilocks Consulting is just right for your business. So thank you so much, Xenon Group. And before we get on with the uh, the presentation here, maybe we should just roll a little bit of footage about Xenon Group. Never hurts to have a refresher. All right, now just wheel out this old uh, squeaky projector and I'll just uh, hit the switch here. The Xenon Group was formed in 1964 when a young man named Alistair P. Xenon realized that most of the world's problems progressed in four predictable steps. Step one was private thoughts that violate the social contract. Step two was speaking those private thoughts out loud. Step three was speaking those private thoughts out loud and acting on them. And step four was genocide. Possibly the worst genocide the world has ever known. So, having this realization, using the sizable inheritance left to him by his father, Alistair Xenon founded the Xenon Group. He swore to solve all of the world's problems. The subversive idea this week that the Xenon Group asked us to look into was the idea of post-scarcity economics, that, that one day there could be enough of everything for everyone. I just want to make fully and totally clear that this is a training tape. We're about to say things that are not approved thoughts, they don't fit the Xenon brand, but it's essential that you know about them and you know how to respond to them to do your job for Xenon Group. Everything that you hear us say from this point on, we believe the opposite. This is merely for the purposes of demonstration. This is so that you can know what is not true, what Xenon and we all condemn. The following training tape is not true. Roll the tape. Warning. It is a fact today that one in 10,000 of us can make a technological breakthrough capable of supporting all the rest. We keep inventing jobs because of this false idea that everybody must justify his right to exist. So we have inspectors of inspectors and people making instruments for inspectors to inspect inspectors. The true business of people should be to go back to school and think about whatever it was they were thinking about before somebody came along and told them that they had to earn a living. Seriously wrong, 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 
Thomas Sowell, a U.S. economist, has this to say about the central question of our time. The first lesson of economics is scarcity. There is never enough of anything to satisfy all those who want it. Uh, what does he think about air? I wonder. It seems like there's enough air for everyone who wants it. I mean, like some places <laughs> it's getting iffy, like too much pollution, but... Sorry, Aaron. It's just impossible that there could be enough air for everyone. It's the first <laughs> lesson of economics is that there's never enough of anything to satisfy everyone. If everyone wants tomatoes, sorry, not enough. You know what I was just noticing is I haven't seen anybody, regardless of how poor they are in our society, walking around with no clothes on. <laughs> like, it seems like there's enough clothes. Like, if you count all the old clothes people throw away and give to donations, because people buy new clothes all the time and then just mm. give the old stuff away. It's very common. No, there's not enough. There's actually a <laughs> whole class of people who <laughs> don't have enough money for clothes and there's just not enough clothes. It just makes sense because of economic. The because, foundational <laughs> first rule of economics it's is just that the there's way it not is. enough clothes. I haven't seen the clothes list because they live in underground caves to hide their shame mm -hmm. from us, the clothes, but they do exist. The best part about this is it's all <laughs> rational. It's that you open up your closet, you say, oh, I've got eight, nine, ten, twelve. 12 shirts, but others have zero. And that's okay because there's not enough to go around. <laughs> but even that, like nobody has zero shirts <laughs> or has access to zero shirts. Even if you only own the one shirt on your back, if you want another shirt, you can get one for free. Like we could do better with like providing people with warm coats or like awesome shoes for the winter, things like that. There's certain items of clothing that maybe aren't as abundant as they could be. Mm -hmm. yeah, but just, just like clothes in general, like you can get clothes. You to, can. To be fair uh, to Mr. Thomas so well, he maybe he's referring to specifically, you know, everyone having the same pair of shoes or something. That might be true that not everyone can have the exact same pair of shoes and some shoes are, well, all shoes are made in finite quantities and there mm -hmm. isn't 7 billion of any one pair of shoes. But on one hand, like we could do that if we wanted to make uniform shoes for everyone <laughs> all in the same style. We definitely have the capacity to do that. That's not a question. And the other thing is that just shoes in general, like the wider category of shoes and the use case of shoes, we definitely have enough of. So to use the word anything here, Thomas, I think was a mistake. Yeah. Because there's a lot of things that we very, very clearly have enough of for everybody. And we have in abundance, you know, there's people who have many pairs of shoes. We have mm -hmm. enough for that. Yeah. Yeah. Shit. I got like five pairs sitting by my door. Oh yeah. Yeah. You're, you're hoarding <laughs> shoes. You're a greedy <laughs> shoe man. And don't look in my closet. Cause there's like probably another six or seven old pairs there too. Whoa. You had 11 <laughs> to, to 12 pairs of shoes. You greedy bastard. Yeah. Just old sneakers and shit that I don't wear anymore. But you need to find someone out. shoeless and you need to give them some shoes. <laughs> I so. should, I should go give away some of my old shoes. That's a good idea. That's recycling. It's positive. <laughs> So yeah, I don't know about this first rule of economics, but it just sounds like really wrong, like yeah, obviously wrong. If that's the foundational rule of your economic <laughs> worldview, then your economic worldview doesn't correlate with reality. Like, I don't know. I haven't studied economics and I by no means can claim to be an economics expert. So maybe... I just don't get why there actually isn't enough air for everyone. But it's like if my day-to-day -day lived reality just seems like there's enough air for everyone. Here's the graph that shows <laughs> that there's not enough clothes for everyone and some people must be naked out there. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> oh, I see. I guess I didn't do my studying. Also, when it comes to stuff like food, according to the United Nations, one third of food on Earth is food waste. It's 1.3 million tons per year of food waste. The amount of people who are hungry which is about one in nine people are malnourished, mm -hmm. when compared to the amount of food waste we have, we're actually overproducing. We're producing so much food that if we fed everyone to full nutrition, we'd still have a bunch of food waste. Yeah. One of the key words in his sentence there is that there isn't enough. There isn't enough of anything to meet <laughs> demand. But we've already talked about how there is enough of many things. But food, food's an interesting one because there are actually people who are starving to death on the planet. And an even much greater number than that is, as you said, people who are malnourished, who just aren't getting enough. But we absolutely do produce enough. The UN statistics on this are pretty crazy. Like 20% of meat and dairy is wasted, never consumed. 30% of grains and cereals that are produced, never consumed. 45% of fruits and vegetables, 45%, almost half of all vegetables that are produced are never eaten. And it's a, it's a small percentage of society that's malnourished or starving. Yeah. So if your your number one rule of economics is that scarcity always exists, and we're saying there there is enough food. Like... <laughs> Water's also pretty easy. Like there's clean water shortages in certain industries or places. And that's, again, these things have become issues in isolated places. But for the most part, there's enough water for everyone. Like you can go into any restaurant and just get water for free in any industrialized country anyway. So the list of things that refutes this claim that that post-scarcity is impossible, which is one way you could paraphrase what he's saying, there will never be enough. Post-scarcity is impossible. The list of things that already refute this claim uh, exists and is growing and, and would be much larger if we had distribution and redistribution mechanisms in place to, to counter this discrepancy between producing enough and everybody actually having enough, getting the enoughness to the people who don't have enough. Yeah, and this narrow economic logic that says, oh, inevitably we don't have enough for everyone is just literally a post hoc excuse to say, oh, those people who are malnourished are starving. That's inevitable. We don't have to do anything about that. Homeless people, we don't need to put them inside homes. That's just inevitable. That's just what the graph says. There's not enough homes for everyone. But in reality, according to like Canadian census data, there's over 1 million empty homes in Canada. And the maximum estimate for the homeless population in Canada is in terms of street homelessness, about 30,000 Canadians sleep on the street every night and including the hidden homeless population. So like people living in cars, on couches and other various ways of in-between street homelessness. There's about uh, 200 to 300,000 and there's about a million empty homes. So it's not as easy as saying like, oh, we'll take those homeless people and put them in all these empty homes. Yeah, there's the question of like, who owns these homes currently? Who's going to be forced to let people into their homes? There's a lot of like specific detailed questions about how to implement something like this. But, but, the, but the raw <laughs> fact of there being enough homes 
to house everyone already is unassailably true. Like it's just two numbers. You only need to know two numbers. <laughs> well, it's, the it's, amount it's, of empty homes and the amount of people who one, need homes. It, it's in one sense, it isn't that simple, but in another sense, it just is that simple. There's enough beds, there's enough homes, there's way, way more than there are people who need them. And that's not even including hotel rooms. Like a hotel room is for all intents and purposes, a single rental occupancy unit. It's exactly the same. There's thousands and thousands of empty hotel hotel suites every night. The idea that there's a scarcity of places for people to sleep or for food to feed them or for water to quench their thirst is completely fallacious and crazy. And just any justification for that is ignoring the facts, is ignoring the reality in favor of an ideology that would deprive people of things. You can have a justification for that that says it's necessary to have this disparity where some people don't get enough, even though we're producing enough, because if we tried to fix that, we would mess the whole system up so badly that we would produce even less and it would be even less of enough. Yeah. So, I mean, if you want to say that we shouldn't make accessible everything that's needed by everyone and take care of ourselves as a species, if you're saying that we shouldn't do that, don't dress that in the lie that it's impossible to have enough for everyone. That's just objectively not true. Address the actual reality that you're arguing that we shouldn't. That is very, very different from the argument that we could never produce enough to satisfy everyone's needs, which relies on this like terrible assumption that people have infinite desires, which makes literally no sense because nobody wants infinite of anything. If you had infinite food in your house, you wouldn't be able to walk around because like <laughs> if the universe had infinite food, like You're nobody has used for infinite flying food. flying out your kitchen window because there's just a continual flow of bananas. Say you love eating so much that you've installed <laughs> a tube into your stomach so that after you eat the food, you can pull it out and then just eat more food because you love eating food so much. All you want to do is sit around and eat food all day. Say that's you. There's still a hard limit on how much food you can eat. It's not infinite. Like you can only chew and swallow so much food in a 24 hour period. Time is limited. Uh, interest is limited. Your life is limited because you're going to die. So the amount that you want is necessarily limited. Nobody wants infinite of anything. Nobody wants infinite shoes. Nobody wants infinite clothes or TVs or iPhones. It's such a stupid idea. And it's so weird how many people just say that, oh, the desires are infinite. So just to like really put a pin in this point, I was looking at free stories for kids.com and I found a story that I think illustrates this well. It's impossible to get this guy off of free stories for kids.com. He's a free stories for kids maniac. Well, see, the great thing about free stories for kids is they teach very short stories with values and they even tell you which values the stories tell you about. So the values of this story are moderation and restraint. And the story is called The Little Glutton. The main lesson is nothing is good when taken to extreme. I always like to know my lesson ahead of time. It keeps me in the right, <laughs> right headspace to really receive it, the lesson. So I think let's just have a bit of music here and we'll do Wrong Boys story time. So once upon a time, there was a little glutton who only ate sweets and candy. 
And one day in an antique shop, he found an old magnifying glass. He liked it a lot, and his parents bought it for him. And he was so happy with his magnifying glass, and as soon as he could, he took it and used it on a little ant. And it was great. The ant looked so big. But then a strange thing happened. When he took the magnifying glass away, the ant stayed the same size it had appeared through the glass. Very surprised, the boy kept experimenting and he found out that anything he looked at through the glass would get bigger and stay that way. Suddenly, he realized how he could best use this special ability and he ran home, he took out all of his candies and sweets and he made them gigantic with his magnifying glass. Then he completely stuffed himself with them until he could eat nothing more. The next morning, he woke up totally swollen, a bit purple, with a huge bellyache. When the doctor came to see him, he said it was the worst bellyache he'd ever seen. All that day, the little glutton suffered so much that for a long time, he didn't even want to hear a mention about large amounts of foods. His parents were happy about this, and in the end, he gave up being a glutton who only ever ate sweets and candy. And so it was that the little glutton learned that even with the best things in life, if you have too many of them, you'll end up feeling ill. Isn't that a nice little story? Yeah, that's an extremely good story. And it's an extremely good story because it teaches good moral values. So I think on behalf of everyone, uh, little gluttons BTFO, small gluttons everywhere destroyed in one simple parable. (laughs) One of the things I like about the story is that it shows the upper limit of needing so much like (laughs) this little glutton is this weird little archetype they made up (laughs) that (laughs) just wants so much stuff and this hungry ghost and even then with him he only wanted so much candy and then he he had like one day with the magnifying glass before he was like oh too much my tummy ache worst one in history according to my doctor (laughs) (laughs) that's a beautiful story thanks for sharing that yeah you're welcome And just on the subject of functional abundance, like you don't need to produce enough speedboats for everyone to have their own speedboat in order for there to be enough speedboats around that everyone gets the experience of speedboatiness, you know, like using a speedboat, riding in a speedboat. And maybe some people would be in a speedboat 24-7, you know, but then you could still make enough to meet the actual real demand a functional abundance. You don't need to talk about an actual literal infinity of speedboats. And you don't even have to produce enough speedboats for everyone to have one speedboat because maybe there's the people who want to live their life on a speedboat, more power to them. But there's people like you and me who I imagine might once a year, once every couple years, maybe enjoy going out on a speedboat for an afternoon. So it's like, say, one out of every 800 days, I want one afternoon with a speedboat. So (laughs) I don't know, do some math about an average number of afternoons people would want to spend on a speedboat, how many speedboats you actually need to build in order to accommodate that. It's, It's far less than one speedboat per person. I bet you 10 bucks. That if you look at the amount of speedboats on Earth right now and do that, like, <laughs> right, do that okay. calculation, right, right, right. we've hit peak speedboat. We've got more speedboats than we need currently. Yeah. And, and there's nothing wrong with having more than you need. Like I'm, I'm fine with producing more food than we need as long as that is coupled with there being actually enough. Like It's good to have a buffer. 
of extra food. It's good to have a buffer of extra iPhones, extra speedboats in case there's a, say, a really popular TV show makes speedboats look cool and there's a sudden surge of interest in speedboats. It'd be great to have enough to accommodate yeah. that surge that of six, interest. That six-week wait time for just to use one stinking speedboat? What kind of fully automated luxury <laughs> communism is this? Exactly. So like... <laughs> Yeah, having having more than enough is w- wonderful, but it's still a finite amount. One of the other reality, like when we're talking about realities, like we have enough for everyone, we should also talk about some other realities that are maybe less fun, which is that there are ecological limits to the capacity of ours to build speedboats. But our ecological limits and our actual demand for speedboats are more likely to be in line with each other than just a, a, a blind, infinite, just use as much resources as you want with no stewardship. Right. Just like, oh, people people want to buy speedboats. Let's make enough speedboats for everybody. You know, like if you were making speedboats based on need, <laughs> I think the ecological effects would be more restrained. There might have to be trade-offs sometimes. You might say, okay, well, there is actually going to be a four-week wait time for speedboats sometimes because it's ecologically too destructive to build too many speedboats. Right, right, right. And that's part of our responsibility as human beings, as yeah. stewards of this planet, which is our home and our relationship and our responsibility to each other. That's fine. That's It's good, actually. Yeah. And I mean, like, maybe one of the things people who have all their food needs, shelter needs, clothes needs taken care of could work on is how to design more economical, efficient speedboats, more more environmentally harmonious, I don't know what words I'm using here, <laughs> environmentally harmonious speedboats, so that th- there's an efficiency calculation here where you can alter the design of new speedboats to make the ecological footprint less, which can increase the amount of speedboats we need. So that, that's, a, that's a project to be worked on. And even if we can't build enough speedboats to eliminate the wait time right now, that doesn't mean that you can't keep that goal in mind and keep working towards that. Because there's this thing with like, people make this argument that we we need to have scarcity so that people are motivated to do things because there'd be nothing to do if everyone had enough food, enough shelter, et cetera, et cetera. But then also that reaching full post-scarcity, having enough speedboats for everyone is impossible. It's a goal that can't be achieved. But those things are in contradiction because if our ultimate goal of having enough of everything, just having it so there's zero wait time for speedboats, is an impossible ideal, that means that we will always have something to work towards. There will always be things to do to get us closer and closer to that receding horizon, that goal that's always there. So the the idea that we're going to run out of things to do is in direct contradiction with the idea that the ideal we're talking about here is impossible to achieve. Because if it's impossible to achieve, that means there's always more to work towards. There's always more things to do. And ecological limits, like the amount of speedboats we can or can't build, are only limits until we design technical ways to get around those limits. Like ecological limits in one sense are fixed, but in the other sense, like we can't, we can't change the requirement that there's only so much of a material, but we might be able to design speedboats that use less of the material or whatever the thing is. There's ingenuity finds ways around these problems and there, there will always be more problems to work on and always more things for people to do 
in a society like this. And th this understanding of our relationship with the Earth's capacity, and I just want to pivot to something else, which is medication, which is uh, we don't always have enough of it, but we always have the capacity to make enough of it. There's people dying of preventable diseases all the time, sometimes having their quality of life restricted or suffering from death because there's restrictive patents on the reproduction of medication that saves lives. Similar to the, the way that the narrow economic logic prevents food being rationally distributed, our ideas around intellectual property sometimes keep medicine away from people who need it. We have absolutely the capacity to make enough medicine for everyone. And it's it's crazy that we actually are going to have to argue in favor of that in our lifetime. Yeah, th this gets back to the thing, the way you said this earlier was people are arguing as if we can't produce enough medicine, but what, what they actually end up arguing is that we shouldn't. And the form that argument takes is usually uh, we shouldn't remove all patents on medicine because if people weren't able to patent their medicine, they wouldn't spend billions of dollars in research developing all these new drugs and testing them out. It's an extremely resource intensive process. And the way that we incentivize that is by letting people patent these medicines and charge extremely high prices for them. That's a different argument. That's saying we shouldn't produce enough medicine for everyone because of these other side effects. It's very, very different than we can't produce enough of the medicine. You could work it out through the tax system somehow, but when, when a government is covering a medication through taxpayer money, I think the price should be at cost. I think the taxpayers should pay at cost for socialized medicine. The private market, they can pay rent to the pharmaceutical companies if they want, but the public, when taking care of the most vulnerable citizens, should not be held to the standard where they have to pay $12,000 for a fucking six cent pill. That's insane. It makes no sense that the government would allow them to charge that money for that if it's saving lives. But anyways, generally when it comes to information, education, or even accessing media like music, movies, software, we have the capacity to reproduce it infinitely. We choose not to because of intellectual property. And where the limits on intellectual property should be to deliver maximum benefit to as many people as possible, I think is a discussion that should happen. They don't have a clear-cut answer. I don't think mm. that abolishing all IP all of a sudden is necessarily the best course of action. I think it might be an improvement on what we're currently dealing with if it helps save lives and helps people access information that helps them to live better lives. It might be yeah. better than what we currently have, but I'm, I think it's just a conversation about how do you ensure that functional abundance while at the same time balancing the needs of the people who participate in the creation of culture. Yeah. In societies where computers are already ubiquitous, files are like air in their abundance. They're, they're so easy to reproduce. There's, there's enough of the MP3 of Miley Cyrus's latest single for everyone to listen to it all at the same time if they wanted to. Mm -hmm. It's it's so abundant. <laughs> it's it's so easily replicated. Oh my god! Six week wait time to listen to Miley Cyrus's new single. Yeah, IP. Um, enough is enough. Yeah, enough is enough, and like we have enough of so many things, and we have the capacity to produce enough of so many more of the things. We don't have enough of every individual thing to have too much of it, right. but we do have enough of every general category of thing to have enough of it. Hey, Bernie Sanders, is enough enough? Enough is enough! Oh, okay, yeah, thanks for clarifying. Oh, yeah, I think we agree with Bernie on this. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Wrong Boys Book Club. 
Uh, this week we have two wonderful books, one of which I've read and one of which I haven't. But the one that I have read references the one that I haven't read extensively. So what I'm about to relay is mostly from the book I haven't read, but through the <laughs> lens of another author. So the book I'm going to be referencing is called From the Wreckage by George Monbiot. But the book that he's referencing that is actually the bulk of this information comes from Donut Economics by Kate Raworth. So in Donut Economics, Kate Raworth undertakes a conscious reframing of economics as a whole by, in part, drawing alternative graphs. Instead of seeing economic graphs as just lines representing numbers happening in a vacuum, uh, she wanted to design graphs that reflected more of the totality of economic reality. So she based this on ideas from George Lakoff. George Lakoff's idea was that when you refute a political frame by saying, you know, it's not true that elephants are pink, you just reinforce the idea that elephants are pink in everyone's mind. And so Kate Raworth was attempting to create new frames for economics that would be more reflective of reality. They're based on concentric circles. Uh, the first of which the largest circle represents like the earth, the matter of the earth. Within that, there's a circle representing society and within that, the economy. So the economy is the smallest circle and the earth is the biggest circle? Well, yeah, the financial economy is the smallest circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, right. And then in between is society, society, which would include everything that humans do that is outside of the market economy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This graph is specifically meant to give a picture of the economy as being part of this greater thing right. in terms of energy that passes through these different concentric circles where uh, matter is taken from the earth, from both living matter and non-living matter, is taken by society and used in a market of financial transactions, which is part of society, where energy flows from one side back to the other and returning as waste material at the end oh, to give oh, like okay. kind of a full... Um, so it starts as matter, passes through society and the economy. Then when it's sold and becomes like a finished product, it returns to society as part of the non-commodified yeah, societies. Yeah. You have a couch or whatever. Eventually it degrades, it becomes waste matter, which then returns to right. the, okay. uh, the world as a whole. So by returning oh, that. that graph is intended to make you conscious of what we're putting out at the end of the whole circumstance. Like what we're putting back into the world and how much of the world we're taking are relevant factors to our economy. Yeah, it is a really good visualization of the fact that this is all a closed system. Like Buckminster Fuller calls it Spaceship Earth. We're all on this one planet. For the most part, things aren't leaving or coming or going from it. So, so when you take raw materials from the Earth and we use them for something, in what state are we returning them to the Earth? I really like that visualization and it dovetails with a concept that I've had a fondness for for a long time called cradle to cradle design, which is the value system that says everything that we make starts with raw materials that are useful and it should end as raw materials that are useful. So that could be like packaging that is biodegradable. After it's used and is returned to the earth, it's not trash. It's not useless. It's compost for soil to grow stuff. It becomes once again a raw material. It is not going from cradle to grave, grave being a, a dumpster uh, <laughs> or a trash heap or the ocean. It goes back to cradle, goes back to being something useful. So it's just a design principle that I think takes the insight that this visualization you're describing offers and is kind of the logical conclusion, or at least the logical ideal to strive towards. 
creating these new graphs, Raworth was basically proposing that we try to rethink economics from first principles, like what are the objectives of the economy? And so how can we make the economy best serve those? So she made another graph, which is again, concentric circles, where the inner circle represents human needs being met. um, And the outside circle represents the ecological limits of what can be taken from the earth or what can be used from the earth. Mm -hmm. Um, And then each of those is split up into like different subsections. So you can graph specifically say like, we're polluting too much air that would represent going overboard in the direction outside the donut. Or if a need wasn't being met, like say there was too much of a risk of war or food wasn't being distributed effectively, stuff like that would create... It's um, getting too close to the center. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. In the center, like inside the donut hole is like an absence of what's needed. An absence of what's needed, not just for individuals, but like humanity as a whole. And once you're outside the donut, then there's no donut anymore. You used too much of the donut and you've gone over the limit. Yeah, Yeah, you're using more than is sustainable and yeah. you're, it's it's dangerous. Having language to map the economy in alternative ways, I think, is a really useful idea. Because the language of economics, there's nothing that people take more seriously, just the way things are economically. It's about framing the way you think about material reality. By using different frames of reference for how you talk about it, lets people think about it in different ways. Mm-hmm. That yeah, they might not have before. But and it's ultimately about describing reality accurately. It's not about having a bias in any specific kind of direction. It's about trying to, to the best of your ability, describe the reality of the economy and all its depths and all, all the things that it touches. Yeah, yeah. If it's not touching reality, then it's useless. Then it's ideology. <laughs> uh, but like those two fundamental limits that she's chosen for the second graph, the the one limit being taking care of basic human necessities, have a, like a basic level of enoughness. And then on the other end, violating the sustainability demand of prudence, <laughs> like just using more than you have, uh, which is obviously bad. Like it's, it's so useful to think of those two as an upper and lower limit and like navigating how to walk on that little pathway without slipping down the cliff onto either side and like staying on that donut. Yeah. On the donut. (laughs) If you're walking around on the donut, not slipping off onto either side. Yeah, so I really enjoyed George Monbiot's book. Like I said, I haven't read Donut Economics, but I like these ideas. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. See you next time on... on Wrong Boys Dictionary. No, 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 not Dictionary. Dictionary reading time. No. Reading the dictionary. No, just a book. Reading books just that aren't book the club. dictionary. <laughs> Wrong Boys reading the books that aren't the dictionary club. <laughs> we have one section for the dictionary and one section for all other books except for the dictionary. Uh, Representative Cunningham, we have uh, your meeting with the little girl from your district. She requested to speak to you. Oh, wonderful. I love speaking with my constituents and helping their needs get met. Better bring her in at once. Bring her in at once. All right. I'll just have to wheel her in on this wheelchair and I'll leave her here and you can talk to her. Hello, little princess. Would you like a cookie? No, thank you, sir. I can't eat cookies because (laughs) I'm too sick. Oh, okay. Oh, Napkin? No, thank you. Water? Do you want do you want water? No, thank you. Uh, so what can I help you with? There's a drug that could cure me completely. My parents don't have enough money for it. And I was hoping the government could 
provide me with the medicine. We'll often cover medication in the province, so I wouldn't rule it out. What's this medication like? What are we covering here? Mom, hand him the information package. <laughs> Thank you. Um, let's see. Azanapranazan. Okay, and that's to cure. Whoa. Wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy, kid. That's yeah, not good. It cures those symptoms. My God. I am so sorry to hear about these symptoms. Do you have all of these? 14 out of 17, sir. <laughs> I, I gotta tell you, it's pretty consistent with our values to uh, protect you from this fate. <laughs> oh. What is it? You mentioned this medicine was expensive, but... Yep, that's a, why we need help. A trillion, million, zillion, billion dollars? That's right. Trillion, <laughs> gajillion dollars. That's a lot of zeros. I'm not sure if we could balance the budget if we did that. I don't know. I just don't want to die. <laughs> All right, think, think. If we paid for this, our entire society would collapse. <sighs> Sometimes you're going to make a tough choice. Little girl? Yeah. Yes? Um, I've got a tough yet principled thing to announce to you. Okay. Am I getting the medicine? Am I gonna live? <laughs> Pains me to say this, but absolutely not. Never will this happen. No. <laughs> um, and I've got another meeting. Secretary. Can uh, you, yes, sir. Can you please wheel her out? I will wheel the Got crying another. girl from your office. You don't uh, need to look at that anymore. Can you tell her that I'm terribly sorry? Uh, he's terribly sorry, girl. Um, I'll let your next meeting in on my way out. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hey, Bill. How's it going? Hey, good to see you. Good to see you. Good to see you. Sit down. Sit down. Um, so how's Pharmacore Unlimited? Mostly doing pretty good. Our profits are up this quarter. That's what uh, I'd like to hear. Shareholders are doing good. You know, everyone's happy. The board's happy. I'm happy. Little fly in the ointment, though. Uh-oh. Trouble in paradise? Yeah. I'm all ears. Uh, you know, one of our signature pills, very popular, prescribed to a lot of people, it's called Relaxomax. Mm-hmm. It costs yeah. about $500 a pill. What a reasonable price. Yeah, for all the R&D we put into it, that is entirely reasonable, let me tell you. Uh, what's not reasonable is that these companies coming out of, you know, I don't even want to say which country, producing the product, we sell for $500 a pill. They produce it for $0.08 cents a pill. They didn't have to do the R&D, and they're selling it for 5 bucks completely undercutting us we can't make our okay, money I'm, back i'm gonna stop you right there i got your backing a hundred percent that's fucked up what's happening i'm putting this at the top of my priority list canceling my next meeting thank Youth you baseball team. thank you yes yeah baseball we need to get medicine to people and we don't want any pirates we don't want any pillagers on the outside taking medicine that doesn't belong to them this is uh, the number one priority for me i'm going to be making phone calls say hi to your wife for me hmm, um, yeah. and once i'm out of this piece of shit job please do endorse me for that board okay sounds great i love you and i'll see you later i love you too i'll see you in bed Sir, sir, do you do you have a moment? Yeah, sure. What is it, Secretary? D- just, it'll be so quick. You know, I just look up to you so much. And, Thank you. You know, one day I want to do what you do, and I was wondering if you had any lessons to teach me. Well, yeah. I'd say today I learned that you just can't help everybody, but you can help some people, and that's what matters. Well, you know what, fellas? It's a beautiful idea. But how are you going to get there? What are the next steps? You just jump to magical utopia all of a sudden?
Yeah, well, no, but it, the next steps is the great way to frame it because whenever you have these magical utopia goals, that's over there, that's on the horizon. But then the next thing you have to do is like, okay, I want to take a step in that direction. You look down at your feet, you look at where you actually are, and you look at what's directly in front of you, where it's possible to take a step. Can I take a step right there? No, there's a giant rock. Got to walk around that giant rock. So you just got to look at the realities on the ground, where in the area directly around you, and start dealing with that reality while keeping in mind, over there's the direction I want to go in. So in that spirit, what, what are some steps we can take from where we are right now to head in that direction, that direction of having enough of enough things? Enough is enough. I think Murray Bookchin had a great way of describing where we're at right now. When he said, a century ago, scarcity had to be endured. Today, it has to be enforced. The reality is we have this incredible abundance just beyond a barrier of political will and, and human political consensus on what should be done mm -hmm. is all that needs yeah. to be changed to suddenly create a new level of experienced abundance that we've had all along. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the easiest example of enforced scarcity is, again, computer files. Like someone was talking recently in the donator group about a book they wanted to read they wanted to get the audiobook and they wanted to check it out of their library's online audiobook checkout system, but needed to wait three weeks or like six months or something. It was a actually a long time because there was like 18 people ahead of them in line for the two copies of the audiobook that the library has. That's just <laughs> enforced scarcity by the most obvious way. But there's a, there's a lot more subtle ways that we do that as well. One of those things is like, what are the protections that we do or do not have in place for food that's about to be spoiled? If we had rules in place that said, okay, grocery stores, when food is two days before the expiry date and it looks like it might not be sold, you have a duty to provide that food to people for free or for restaurants for free to provide to people for free. If in our hierarchy of values, we placed higher the duty to food that's been produced to have it be consumed, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. In, in the service of having enough food for people to be satiated and full and comfortable. Start placing like a high value on using every bit of food on the plate, you know, like not taking more than you need at the buffet, not just as individuals, but as a species. The way that this is an enforced scarcity is it's enforced by the structures that we have in place surrounding food, the well, institutions we have in place surrounding food. And also very specifically, prices and wages. Prices and wages are extremely key to enforce scarcity. It, like, There's no way right. to talk about food not getting where it needs to go or just anything not getting where it needs to go, ex except for what are the prices of doing so and, and what are the wages of the people involved? Yeah. You look at homeless people on the street. The reason that they're not walking into restaurants and getting food is because they don't have enough money <laughs> to do that. Like the food exists. There's tons of food in every single restaurant and there's tons of food in every single grocery store. And the only reason that people aren't walking in getting enough is, yeah, because of their wages, which could be anything from zero to a lot and the price. So my idea for a next step was to implement protections for 
the food that is currently being wasted. And the ways that we can do that is by requiring grocery stores to give away food that is about to be expired and requiring all restaurants to offer something for free. We have all these restaurants, these food distribution points around everywhere. They're in every city. They're all over the place. They're already set up. They already exist. And with a bit of tweaking, we could turn each of those places into somewhere where the hungry can eat, no matter what. It doesn't have to be your best, most expensive, amazing $100 sashimi or whatever, but like a simple rice dish. It's part of your social responsibility as a restaurant, as someone making money from the selling of food to also offer one option, at least, for free. You know, I really think that's a brilliant idea, and I want to give you credit for it, because the more I thought about it, the more it is a pragmatic step forward. I like that it creates a situation where, say, friends are meeting at a restaurant, one person gets the free dish, one person gets the non-free dish, because where they're at financially at that time, it's just like creates more opportunities for sociality, and it's just this positive thing like to feed people. It's just, I like that idea so much. And like, one of the things that I ran into when I was thinking of like, what, what are people's objections to this? Like, there's some obvious ones, one of which is like having people in the restaurant who aren't paying for food, taking up space or homeless people who don't have access to like a shower every day and stuff like they can be unpleasant to be around for various reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it'd be easy enough to sort of legislate around these problems like it's okay to have mandatory to go bags or require that half of the people at any given table are buying full priced meals in order to like participate in the restaurant. But like something that you said that stuck with me about this is like we already have this network of food distribution everywhere. Like there's food being distributed on every major street in Vancouver constantly. Like you don't need to reinvent the wheel. You just put a little add on to it. It's like you have to at least give people rice and beans for free, if nothing else. Some bags of those cheap ass frozen vegetables. Mix that with a little bit of rice, a little bit of beans. It's so fucking cheap. Like servings would probably cost the restaurant like when they buy it in bulk, five cents, 10 cents, maybe it, it'd be so fucking cheap. And like the whatever little bit of labor it costs one of their cooks to start a rice cooker, mix it together with some beans and some steamed veggies. It would just be so easy to make this, keep it on a heater all day, have a bunch of servings, hand them out to whoever wants one. And like, it's pretty nutritious having rice, veggies, and beans. It's a good meal. Like, it's, it's, it's cheap. It, like having restaurants do it is probably cheaper than having individuals do it themselves because there's the economy of scale, both in purchasing and producing. There's the convenience to the end user of like a kitchen's already in the continual process of washing its dishes and everything, you know, like there's, yeah, there's exactly. people there doing that. And it's just like, You can see it as like another form of taxation, like in the same way that there's protections for consumers that affect businesses. Yeah, like they have to follow health codes. You can't have rats running around on the food preparation table and you just wipe the poop off with your hand and keep making the food. That's illegal and it costs restaurants money to maintain that state of affairs. It would be cheaper to let the rats run all over the food, but we don't allow that. (laughs) In the same spirit, it would be cheaper for them not to 
produce this rice, beans, and veggies things, or whatever they want. If they just want to use the food they're already buying that they would have thrown out because it was starting to get old. No, we're just going to cook it, give it away. That's also fun too. Like a crappy vegetable soup. Instead of rice and beans today, we have leftover fries and something else. And that's what we're giving out today because we need to use up some of these old fries we have. Fine. That's fine too. Just as long as it's something. I feel like I would, I would definitely use that service when I needed it. Oh yeah. Yeah, totally. I would also probably use it when I didn't need it, but I would tip. Right. Which tipping would probably more than cover the cost of the production in the in the first place. And also I think there's a good argument for giving subsidies or tax breaks to people who do this just because the cost to benefit ratio is insane. I, I just I love the idea that if I had an unexpected expense, say like, oh shit, I got hit with a bill for $80 from something that I wasn't expecting and now I feel a little bit more of a crunch. If I could just be like, oh yeah, but I can just eat free food for a week. It would just immediately like ease those little bumps in the road that come up that give you a bit of anxiety because, oh shit, my money's tighter than I thought it was. If there was give somewhere in this food system, I don't have to buy groceries this week. It's fine. (laughs) I can go get the free rice and beans every day. So that's a nice utopian step. Welcome to Keyboard Warrior Radio Theater. Wow, I can't I can't listen to this stuff without telling you that you are up in the clouds. This is ridiculous. You know what my father taught me? There's no such thing as a free lunch. And what he meant by that is that somebody always pays. And that's what you guys are not taking into account. You want every restaurant to give out free food? Who's going to be paying for that food? It's not free. Somebody's paying for it. You understand what I'm saying? Free isn't free. Free software, free movies. Someone had to create those things. Uh, Free medical care. Someone has to provide that. You need a doctor. You need someone to make the medicine. It's not free. It's not free to build an MRI machine, okay? And now you're talking about giving away free lunches. My God, screw your head on straight. I mean, first, I hear your point that everything is has to be paid for by someone. Uh, things just don't come out of nowhere. That's totally true, and just I agree with that. So in the case of the restaurant example, the restaurant pays for the labor. The actual substance of the food comes from what was going to be thrown out by grocery stores. So in e- either case, the grocery store was going to have to eat that cost, and the restaurant is chipping in part of their labor hours. On a general philosophical basis, there is such a thing as a free lunch. There's tons of contexts in which you can get a free lunch with no strings attached. In economics, they call that a windfall game. So like an example of a windfall game would be winning the lottery. The amount of free lunches throughout history are just too numerous to get into in detail. Free lunches exist, and when they're good, they can actually be pretty good for society. Specifically, free lunches to those who most need lunches, uh, rather than the uh, existing system, which tends to give weird benefits to uh, people who actually don't need their lunch paid for. That's a really good point. I, I almost forgot today when I was at Costco, they had so many stands open for free samples. I almost had a free lunch today. <laughs> oh man, how did I forget about that? No, you're totally right that free lunches exist. Uh, thanks for the chat. And we'll see you next time for another episode of Keyboard Warrior Radio Theater.
Okay, here's my radical utopian step. It's going to involve antagonizing some people who are powerful, just like yours. Uh, it's going to involve thinking outside the box. And it's going to involve solving a crisis, uh, which is, is homelessness. The answer to the homelessness problem is society's relationship to hotel rooms. We think of hotel rooms as these sacred things that we can't use to solve <laughs> the serious problem of homelessness. Right. But I got news for you. We can use those rooms. There's various ways to make hotel rooms more accessible to people who are desperately in need of housing. And I bet you when you crunch all the numbers, it's actually pretty affordable to uh, put people inside of housing instead of sending them to the hospital. Even if you put someone in a hotel room and you know they punch a hole through the wall and they break the lamp or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. See, I was thinking about some of these problems too. And th that one specifically, well, what if someone comes into the hotel room and you could say it's marginal to have the people make one more bed or whatever, but if they're creating holes in the walls, these things, it could become expensive, but you can have things in place where like, okay, if a person has, damage your hotel room like you don't have to let that person in to your hotel anymore maybe they have to take some other path like you can maybe forfeit that right in some way or maybe after a certain amount of time even it could be gained back or wh whatever you can have rules in place that would minimize that problem when someone's in a position where they've got anger problems and they're moving from shelter to shelter and causing damage and so on mm -hmm. if you just keep a record on who people are and you have like a caseworker you understand what's going on with them yeah you can avoid putting them in situations where they're damaging anything valuable yeah. um, and the, it's like it's not that hard to figure out but also you could calculate like what's the cost of this damage in real terms pay off that damage but then just somehow abstractly carry that debt with that person that if they're ever better again in a better position earning more money they they owe six thousand dollars right like it took it TVs. took it took the maintenance guy three hours to patch that hole in the wall the maintenance guy gets paid 25 dollars an hour uh plus the materials let's say all in all it cost 150 bucks for the hotel to fix that hole in the wall they have yeah like this abstract 150 dollar debt that at some point should they have enough that that's an interesting either thought. i mean it could either be paid for by them or their family there's no it doesn't need to be interest on it it could be paid off as a gift to them or something like that it just follows them it's something that exists yeah. it remains to exist ultimately it should be either paid for by them or paid for by someone else, but ultimately paid for. <laughs> yeah. It sounds kind of like weird and dystopian to be like, oh, people should just get debt. But like, there, could, there should be consequences for actions. They don't sure. need to be like yeah. a huge fucking insurmountably growing debt burden of like high yeah, interest rates and shit like that. Yeah, exactly. So so the way I was imagining this working was say there's a rule that by 10 p.m., if you have 30 free rooms, you have to give 20 of them away to people who just know that after 10 p.m. you go start checking the hotels. Do you have rooms available? They have to have a certain amount that, yes, they can reserve a few for if someone shows up at 2 a.m. and wants to buy a room. Okay. But for people who have no place to live, whatever, they, they can start showing up at after 10 p.m. And if they have a certain amount of rooms, it's just unlikely they're going to fill them all. They let people in. And another thing in this very similar area is I was talking with someone online about creating nicer prisons and how it sucks that we make all prisons suck and living in prisons is basically torture for everyone. Uh, and that torturing people who did things wrong doesn't really help anything. And and their objection to that was, well, if you make prisons so nice, people are going to just go around committing crimes just so they can get back into prison. And I was like, oh, oh easy way to solve that problem. <laughs> 
just let people stay in prison. If being in prison is like, like you can just go to prison whenever you want. If prisons are so nice that people prefer being in prison yeah, to being outside. The crime. Yeah, they don't have to commit the crime to get in. You or, can just get in. Okay, I've got a radical idea. Don't make it so committing crime and going to prison is better than being free in society. <laughs> <laughs> like you can make prison better, but also make sure that there's opportunities available to live a fulfilling life outside of prison. It, no. ju- it just <laughs> caught my imagination that like, okay, if we made prisons decent places to live in, like people get a decent room. Like that's how I framed it. I didn't even say a nice room, which is phrasing we've used before. Like make prisons nice rooms. I was like, make it a decent room just so it's it's not torture. An adequate room. Make it and, enough. Yeah, enough. Just enough. <laughs> even like like a barely enough. Like it's enough, but it's like you would, you'd like it, the bed to be a little softer or something. That's fine. Mm, you wish the curtain around the toilet went all the way to the floor, but yeah. whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but if those rooms are decent enough that people prefer that to sleeping on the street that's fine just let them in that's such like, a great step towards prison abolition is just to let normal people go into prison too yeah like just have a mixture to. between instead of just a place that's full of inmates it's a place that's full of inmates and people who still have rights who like hang out together <laughs> right 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 or, and depending how dangerous they are there can be different levels of containment and like who really needs to be separated from everyone and who doesn't so much but still doesn't have their freedom and like how much observance there would be to make sure nothing bad happens to anyone and it would be voluntary to go in or not but like all those things thought of and those are all easily surmountable problems one reason for people on the the right to support this idea is that it means that leftists will send themselves to prison <laughs> to be good role models yeah all those moochy lazy loser leftists who just want to take 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 see that there's free rooms available over at the prison but also like from the perspective of a leftist activist i could see the appeal of taking a two-month prison sentence and um attempting to like organize inmates talk to them about politics talk to them about various things i guess it could be abused in various ways it's not just You'd probably get like Nazi entryism. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still a fascinating like transitional step because it does feel closer to prison abolition in a way. Another step is to change our relationship to intellectual property. We talked about it earlier, but yeah, just to make it explicit that that's years, something we could do. One years. I mean, currently copyright is life of author plus 55 years or something yeah, like that. That's crazy. It makes no goddamn sense. It just, you don't need your copyright 50 years after you're dead. Even if it could be something like you invent a new character, like you're Disney, you just invented Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse comes super popular. You get four years of exclusive use plus another 20 years where other people who use it have to give you a little bit of what they make, like a pittance. Yeah, you like and then after 25 of- years, it's open. Like something like that, I could see being f- a way to protect people's interests, having those tiers of like, you get a bit of time of exclusive use, then you get a bit of time where you're paid for other people to use, and then it becomes public domain. I like the idea of going even further. Like you could have it so the copyright is in a sense infinite and like there's like a final stage where all of your descendants split like one fraction of a percent of anything that features Mickey Mouse because you invented <laughs> invented Mickey Mouse. Right, right, right. The thing that I really hate about copyright is that exclusive use thing where like I own Mickey Mouse and I can stop you from writing a story about Mickey Mouse and making money on it. That just seems so wrong to me. Like to to stop people from making their own Mickey Mouse cartoons. Just it's a moral fucking abomination it's like 
there's so much culture that could be happening if it was open. Or like, and like, and it, you could say they deserve to be paid for creating Mickey Mouse. Fine. If someone else creates a Mickey Mouse thing, it becomes really popular. They make a lot of money. Yes, they get some of that. They get, they get a piece, but they can't stop you from doing it. And if it makes no money, you don't owe them anything. Another moral travesty is something like Aaron was mentioning to me earlier, what CD, the, the torrent tracker for music, right. which yeah. is probably the largest, most successful musical library in human history. Yeah, it's like if for people who know how torrent trackers work, they track your upload and your download and the division between those two is called your ratio and different sites have different ratio requirements. And the way what CD worked was that if you wanted a decent ratio, you basically have to upload stuff like your own files. You can't you can't just download things and seed them. You are heavily, heavily incentivized to actually go find music that's not already on the tracker and upload it. And you get the most if the one that you upload is a 100% clean FLAC copy of the CD or digital FLAC file if it's a newer album. So they created the world's largest collection of absolutely pristine copies of as much music as possible because people were just incentivized to be like, okay, what already hasn't been uploaded? I'm going to go through my local library, find all these weird samba records or like jazz music from the 50s that people haven't uploaded yet. I'm going to log the CDs 100% flax on my computer and then upload those. And then other people trying to get ratio download things, even if they're not listening to it. And it just creates this well-seeded archive of the most music ever. And then, yeah, legal trouble hit and they got shut down. So, yeah, intellectual property burned down the Library of Alexandria of Music. Yeah, like within yeah. our lifetime. Rich friends making up rich ideas together in such a way that all the richy riches burned down the library of fucking Alexandria. Well, congratulations. <laughs> congratulations, Richies. There is a relatively happy ending, though, which is that in the wake of what CD's destruction, three new music trackers that are very similar have popped up and they have active user bases who are all in the process of, they're mostly previous users of what, who are uploading all the shit that they had to these places. There's now more redundancy because there's three of them. Not any one of them is as big as what was, but they're all building back towards that goal again. So how much money does it cost to feed and house all the musicians on earth and just get that taken care of. So <laughs> right. we don't need to worry about fucking giving $10 every time we download an album. Let's work from first principles here. If we take care of ourselves, if everyone gets enough food and shelter and so on, then there's no need to argue that people should not be allowed to access music or should not be allowed to access movies or should not be allowed to access recipes or blueprints or what, what have you. It's so funny we have to argue for this, argue that people should be allowed to listen to music in the year 2018, argue that like people shouldn't die because there's medicine that they don't have the right to eat, even though it's like there and it's actually pretty cheap to produce. Yeah. Like the problem of abundance and enforced scarcity is like one of the key political problems that we're dealing with right now on earth. And if we learn to talk about it better, I think we could make some pretty big inroads, like pretty fast. On yeah. The yeah, yeah. People talk about post-scarcity like it's this thing so far off in the future. But for the really important stuff, as I hope we've been demonstrating for the past while, it's not that hard to get to that relative abundance place, that functional abundance place. It's not that far off. The, the idea of like infinite speedboats and beachfront property for everyone, that's 
you know, really far off in the future because it's how do you do that? But uh, <laughs> uh, 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 for food, shelter, like these things, it's 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 not this distant possibility. It's things that you can take pretty pragmatic, functional steps to right now. I'm starting to think that you liberals aren't going to just come out and say it and name the problem for what it is. You're just going to sugarcoat it. The problem is capitalism. The reason that we have all these problems in our society of distribution is because things aren't organized according to need. They're organized based on the profit of private corporations and wealthy financiers. If you implement any of these changes without switching to a communist system, you're in a recipe for a long-term problem, buddy. Because according to my analysis, if we implement changes like the ones you describe in this episode under a capitalist system, you're inevitably going to lead to capitalism becoming strengthened and resolved against outside interference. We're going to be stuck with capitalism for a lot longer because the more it feeds, the stronger it gets. And the thing that it feeds on is reforms. Name the problem. Capitalism. Say it. I want to hear it with your mouth. Capitalism. You should say it. You know, I think there's a lot of really important points in what you bring up the way that our price system monetary economics incentives not taking human need enough into account and how we structure our economics these are all really fundamental questions to how our society is run and it's really important to be talking about those things and thinking about radically different ways of organizing but at the same time i I just gotta say that i think it's also important to look at where we are right now and take steps from here you know so what can we do from here to make things better and i don't think the answer to that is to let things get worse so that eventually everything crashes and then we can build something else new and call it something else Uh, that just doesn't seem like a good plan of action to me letting things get worse in order to make them better later i just want to make them better now we can deal with systemic fundamental changes either in a reformist way or in a more quick way i'm open to talking about all those things but i do think that making people's day-to-day experiences better in the world no matter what you want to call the system running the world that's what's really important what's important is the on the ground reality and making that better for people you know what? I see that you're totally right about this. It's absolutely consistent to uh, see changes in the moment and in the context that we're dealt, while at the same time imagining uh, more beautiful futures together. So thank you so much for a great post. And uh, if you didn't notice, I did send a like your way. So emoji smiling. Another thing that we should do is like really as a species and as a society step up our recycling game. Like you said, with the cradle to cradle stuff, like embedding our long-term plan for something in its design. And also just any sort of recycling that happens not at the consumer level, I would consider a type of super recycling. Like if you sort stuff at the plant instead of having individuals sort it. Just because we have such a high rate of like non-compliance with stuff like that, like we need to figure out long-term solutions. Part of that is making recycling convenient for people. And I think part of that might be paying people to do the hard part of recycling instead of expecting people to do the hard part of recycling. Yeah. And just like doing simple things like designing into objects, ways that they can be used for as long as possible, like making things durable and not so that they break. Or if there are parts that are bound to break, like batteries don't last for that long, you make those removable, you make phones modular so that if you want to upgrade a part of it, you don't have to throw out the whole phone 
alone. Just thinking about these things as a holistic system and looking at all the aspects and trying to solve those problems is there's so many different paths to take to working towards these solutions. So there's just so much to do. There might also be a need for kind of a cultural shift towards like, say, instead of replacing a chair, getting that chair repaired or just strongly shying away from throwing things away unless they need to be thrown away rather than just, you know, getting rid of old stuff because it makes it much easier to deal with your space if you get rid of stuff. And also like having better systems to deal with stuff that people want to get rid of. I can't tell you how many things I've thrown out that people could have used just because it's the easiest thing to do. Like, nobody's going to come get it. I have to like go drop it off at a donation store or something like that. The easiest thing for me to do is to go throw it in the dumpster because then it's gone and I don't have to think about it anymore. You have to make it the easiest thing to do to put it somewhere where people can take it or reuse it. Also along those lines, I once when I was moving accidentally left a garbage bag full of clothes that I still wanted and I really liked in a place where other garbage bags were and it got taken away and thrown in the garbage. Oh no. And if we had a system that was looking at the contents of what was being thrown away, you know, I wouldn't have got to keep my clothes that I liked. <laughs> like it was a bag also specifically of clothes that I did like. They were you know, so, right. sort of sorted. Uh, oh no, that <laughs> like sucks. I was, getting I was getting ready to get rid of some of my clothes. But anyways, at least someone would have them if it was brought to the dump and they were like, oh, this seems like pretty good clothes. Actually, this is all like new clothes. Yeah, right. <laughs> we Wonderful should clothes. give this to someone who needs it. Um, like the system should be designed that way. Absolutely. Wow, you are full of a lot of hot air, gotta say. Sure, feeding everybody, clothing everybody, giving homes to everybody, using all the empty homes to house the homeless. Sounds good, but do you honestly think that nobody's ever thought of this before? That maybe these problems aren't as easily solved as you seem to think they are? That there's a lot of really complicated moving parts to these issues and there are consequences to all of the plans of action that you've submitted and that maybe people are already trying to do this and this is the best we can do right now have you have you ever thought that maybe your wild little fantasies aren't revelatory Yes, absolutely. It's going to be hard anytime to do anything that's extremely important and, and large. Anything that echoes throughout history, like abolishing poverty, involves a lot of complicated steps. Like, absolutely, we need to study those steps, figure out exactly what to do. But we just shouldn't see the challenges as insurmountable. And we shouldn't, at the very least, let's talk about those problems as problems that can be solved and as hurdles in the way of solving the problem instead of being like it's not possible to solve the problem because problem this problem here blah blah problem you say oh problem 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 blah 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 let's still do it capiche wow yeah you're right i was being needlessly pessimistic and nihilistic about ever making any improvements just because it's hard you're right of course it's hard but we should still work towards it thanks thanks for convincing me of that Oh, no problem. It's such a pleasure to set kids like you straight and get you flying right and on the right path. 
I also just realized that it's totally affordable. I have enough money and I think that it's a good idea for me to chip in six bucks a month to you guys on Patreon. I understand that you have bonus episodes, that you do monthly Google Hangouts. The first one just happened. It's going to be another one in February. Helps you guys keep making the show, keep doing what you're doing, doing what you love, do more of it. I am excited to contribute. So I just wanted to say that also. And thanks for the show. I love it. Thanks a lot, man. I love you. I love you. I love you. Thank you. Next time on Seriously Wrong, Sean and Aaron create a special rap album to help connect homeless dogs with dogless families. 2018. Wrong boys coming at you. Can you believe what they're doing with those dogs out there, man? And the families that need those dogs <clears throat> just ain't right. Not right. Those dogs are outside and they're cold. It's not right. They need to go inside with the families at night. And we need to find the families that need to find the dogs that need to have a house and need to have the kids. Those dogs are cold and they want to come home. It's not right. Those homes need a dog and those Bring kids those would dogs love inside. a dog. What's going on with these dogs on the streets at night? They need a house. What? What's going on with the streets on the dogs and the dogs in the house at night? Huh? Let them come home. Let them come home. Let them come home. Let them come home. Find me a family that needs a dog and then connect the dog at need Those to that dogs family. dogs are cold and they want to come home. It's not right. Those homes need a dog and those Bring kids those would dogs love inside. a dog. Word. 2018. Wrong boys. Buy our merch. And that was it. We hope that you enjoyed this Xenon Group presentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, just remember, once again, everything you just heard, completely false. Those are the types of things that when we talk about first this private thoughts, subversive private thoughts, counter, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. And yeah, that's an example. From that can come speaking, which, you know, for the demonstrative purposes, we've engaged in speaking. But we were speaking thoughts that we don't privately think. So that's why it was okay. It's for educational purposes. The next step would be taking actions along these lines. So that's like any of the actions described in this episode. And as our founder warned so many years ago, uh, the next step after that is genocide. Potentially the worst genocide we've ever known. Yeah. 
And so, uh, as we finish with all these tapes, we're going to describe to you how to stop it. This is where you come in. As employees of the Xenon Group, when you're scanning people's thoughts, if you notice anyone having these private thoughts, mm -hmm. there's a two-step program to uh, solve that problem. Prevent genocide. Let's just put it bluntly. Prevent, Prevent genocide. genocide. Yeah. Uh, first, you want to stop their private thoughts. Now, we do that with a standardized implant. It's an easy, effective solution that gives you complete control over what the subject can or cannot think about. Um, it works for 99.9% .9 of people. There's a statistically small amount of people who their body rejects the chip, but chances are you won't see that. It's vanishingly small and we can bully those people into submission by controlling everybody else. So yeah, the problematic thoughts are the source of the problem. You want to get right in there at step one and stop those problematic thoughts. It's simple. And then step two is sometimes step one causes some emotional dysregulation. And so you want to drug away those emotions. Now, we've got just an incredible array of numbing balms, lotions, pills, drops. They just added some gummy bears to the selection, gummy which bears. I highly recommend. People love to eat them. Um, so what these things do is they, how could you put it? They take emotions and they put them away. It's like there's you and there's your emotions and they keep hurting you and poking you. And we just put a nice big cushy soft pillow in between you and your emotions so then they try to poke at you but you can barely feel it or it kind of feels kind of nice and because the pillow is so soft it's a comforting thing these drugs solve all of the emotional problems caused by controlling the thoughts and what you have at the end of it is a functional perfect citizen yeah someone who's just really going to make wrong town work a perfectly rational unit of economic agents making uh, completely rational decisions in a predictable and systemic way like a colony of ants i just want to thank again xenon group xenon group for letting us do this and for keeping us all safe i'm glad they fund us i hope that all the businesses out there listening to this mm -hmm. uh, can trust in the goldilocks consulting firm and hire us for other consulting gigs Thank you for listening to this tape. If you turn it over, we have tape 143, and you'll find out what that's about when you get there. And as Xenon Group always says, Hasta la vista, baby. baby.